Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Today's topic is going to be mental health. I have one of the subject matter experts with me today. Beth Jacobs is here. So if you want to just tell the folks a little bit about how do we get where we are today and how did you and I meet? Because 10 years ago, a, you know, a firefighter, a paramedic and a mental health counselor weren't always in the same room. So how did you get into all of this? Very good question. Uh, I would say that I, I want to share my story a little bit. And it's that I started private practice about five years ago. And I had to write a profile of what I do. Uh, and part of that was to say that I was a law enforcement spouse. So therefore, I thought, well, I can offer my services to any first responder. And I was quickly humbled when I got a phone call from a career firefighter. I had no idea what that meant, by the way. And in he walked, and I realized that I had really no idea about modern-day fire service or EMS, and I was quickly humbled. And he taught me the basics, and then we proceeded with our work together. And eventually, as fate would have it, his department was starting a behavioral health program, and they needed a clinician to work with their peer support team. And I found myself saying yes to the first meeting, and I ended up riding in a, fire, in a ladder truck, excuse me, a brand new ladder truck, to this meeting, walked into, through those doors. I walked into a place that I had walked by for years without thinking for a second, who was inside and wh- what did they do? And again, this humbling experience of feeling very unfamiliar, but I was quickly welcomed in and made comfortable. And I realized that I had something to offer to them just as they have something to offer to our community and to each of us in our time of need. And that was about three years ago. That quickly turned into another uh, firefighter coming in and another and another, and it's expanded to, in private practice, seeing, I see over 100 by now first responders in three years. If that's any indication of the, the need out there for uh, mental health care and also the desire, then let, let's say it's a good thing because the stigma is causing a lot of unnecessary suffering uh, to the point of suicide. And that's something I'm very passionate about is breaking through the stigma, through education and care and connecting people who know what it's like to be there and who have gone through. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one thing I've always appreciated about you and our uh, you know, on my particular department chaplain right now, hmm. is we know that you don't necessarily come from the fire academy. You're not out there in the street with us. But what you guys do um, contribute is you come into the firehouse and you have dinner with us. And I've seen you guys on calls with me mm-hmm. before, you know, and you guys will, you know, stay over for a couple hours a night. You'll ride around. You'll see who we deal with and what we deal with and how we interact with each other and where we live, where we eat, you know, how our families are doing. And I think that's something that's really important because, I think one of the reasons we have a stigma that you guys are talking about is, you know, for me, if I go out there and I'm, you know, doing something crazy on the on the streets and I'm taking care of somebody who's really sick or doing something on the fire ground, and then I feel like I need some help and I go to someone and they sit there with a clipboard and check a box telling me what I should mm-hmm. and shouldn't feel or what is and isn't okay and all these other things, my first instinct is honestly, if you haven't seen it, then how can I describe it? How exactly. could you ever feel it? You know, and um, you know, the things I carried is one of the old books I used to read with, uh, I think Tim O'Brien wrote that. He talks about story truth, about mm. no matter what you tell, it won't reflect the same thing as what you felt in the moment. No matter how accurately we tell it, we can't commute, like the other person will never feel that unless they were there. Wow. And I think there's a reason why, you know, firefighters tend to go to other firefighters. And sometimes, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but sometimes the best therapy is just, you know, ripping old shingles off a roof with one of your buddies. Cause you know that they know what you're talking about. And I think your 
organization and, you know, the chaplain that we work with does a really nice job of providing pretty much the closest transition to that type of therapy because you've, you've met with us and you've eaten with us and we know you and we see you around because if you're the type of counselor that comes in only when that, when that bad thing happens, they're always going to associate you with that, you know, but if you're, if you're having chocolate chip cookies with us and, you know, you're out there hanging out and doing events and riding along and, you know, watching scary movies on a Friday night, like that really starts to make a strong connection. And as you know, if you don't have a connection with the people you're working with, you'll never get to any sort of the root cause. You'll never be able to actually help them at all. Wow. That's beautifully said. That's no, true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't even practice. That was <laughs> right off the cuff. So, um, so one of the things I want to move into with you, since we have time with you today, um, is I want to talk a little bit about what type of services do you offer? We, we know that you offer some psychotherapy services. Um, if I were struggling and I wanted to communicate with you, first of all, what can you offer me? And second of all, if I'm interested, how would I get in contact with you? Uh, I say right now to go to Psychology Today and type in my name, and it'll come up. Um, I would say, depending on where you're listening, uh, something I want to talk about in depth maybe another time is EMDR therapy. And if you're somebody who works in the first responder field, EMS especially, um, you want to get yourself in touch with somebody who is fairly established in this practice as somebody who can partner with you as you have traumatic experiences because you most likely will be exposed to, to a lot. Um, so, yeah, psychology today, there I am, and... Uh, Perfect. Yeah, look at Beth Jacobs, and then they can get in contact with you through the website, right? Something like that? Absolutely. Perfect. Yes. All right. Awesome. So one of the things that I've kind of noticed over my time in the fire service is when I first came in a while ago, there was a kind of a culture of, like, sometimes the firefighters are going to be gruff. Sometimes they're going to be happy. Like, sometimes they're going to have mood swings. It is what it is. Like, that That guy's just a grouch. That guy's doing this thing, mm-hmm. that thing. And I think now we're doing a little bit of a better job actually evaluating what's going on you know if someone's mm-hmm. dish isn't mm-hmm. washed in the kitchen sink and they have a you know 20 minute screaming match at the probationary firefighter maybe there's something more than just the dirty dish you know maybe there's something behind that and i think we're doing a much better job of not just blowing that off as ah he's grouchy or ah he's mm-hmm. fine or ah mm-hmm. he's tired um so why don't you talk a little bit about what should people in this business be looking looking out for for like a warning sign that something might be bugging them? I know you said you were a spouse of a law enforcement officer. Were there any any times where, you know, he came home and you're like, Ugh, something might have gone on, like something's a little different, something's off. You know, what are those things that people from the outside can pick up on that are indicating there might be something a little bit more than just, uh, you know, the normal rollover on the wrong side of the bed day? Gotcha. Okay. So uh, something that you may want to talk about at some point is the idea of, of say, partners in a family who uh, share a lot or don't share and the choice to do that. So in my particular case, from the very beginning, I wanted to really be involved in um, my husband's career. So he shared with me pretty much everything about the work, which in a way was very positive. I learned about it. And also I became a little traumatized myself from hearing about these stories. Um, So I would say that depending on who you have in your life, especially your partner, to have somebody to share this with or your friends or colleagues, then that is something uh, that is very important to do so people understand what your baseline is. And sometimes a wall is necessary. In my own personal experience with my husband, his wall is necessary at times to really uh, reflect on all that he has seen and been through. And so it's, um, it's trying to figure out how do you respectfully have that person uh, live behind that wall to a certain extent, 
but be able to kind of thaw out and push through and re-engage with the family or re-engage with activities they enjoy. So I think it's honoring that there is a, a wall sometimes that is necessary, but also wanting the person to be able to live fully in all different aspects of their life, their family activities, uh, extended family, et cetera, while they do this very important work. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I know I'm personally really lucky um, because my significant other is an emergency room nurse. So they're used to kind of the sleep deprivation and the high yeah. speed environment, you know, and you may be, you know, helping somebody with a broken toenail one minute and then you may be doing chest compressions on a child another minute mm-hmm. and it's very fast paced. Mm-hmm. So her and I, I think, have a really good relationship where we can pretty much talk about anything. You know, we, we have kind of a common understanding. Most of the things I've dealt with, she's dealt with. And even when she hasn't dealt with them, she's dealt with something similar enough to kind of at least know the base emotion that I'm dealing with, which is really um, something special, which is ironic because when I, ever since I was a teenager, my mom always said she thought I would do well with an ER nurse because <laughs> they, you know, they don't, you know, they don't take any garbage from anybody. They uh, have weird sleep schedules and they see a bunch of stuff and they know how to compartmentalize and take care of it. So, um, and they take care of people, you know, there so you when I need a lot, for those that know me, I, I take a lot of care. So <laughs> um, that's really helpful for me. But there definitely have been times in my life where you know, say I'm talking to my mom or my dad, you know, my dad's a computer guy and my mom's a, you know, works as a copy editor and things like that. And uh, there are just things that I can't tell them, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. not that they can't handle it. It's just that they haven't been brought up to speed right away. It's like if someone's first plane ride was in a fighter pilot, you know, you have to, you know, in a fighter jet, you have to you have to bring people up to speed slowly. And somebody like my significant other has been in that environment. So if I say, hey, like, you know, I dealt with someone the other day and their head was cut off by the sunroof, like they can they can at least understand because they've seen something similar. If right. I were to say that to someone not in an EMS community, that might be something pretty shocking. Right. You know, even something as simple as, you know, here at Nets, we do a lot of CPR classes. We teach our CPR classes in a more candid way for those providers that are from healthcare fields that have done CPR as opposed to, you know, a uh, book club that wants to learn the basics of CPR, right? You know, we're going to we're going to cater to the audience based on what their experiences have been. And I think uh, that's what we were talking about a little bit is that oversharing and undersharing, you know, because you you want to find the right balance for your partner and like you said, I think the only way to really do that is have that conversation with them and make sure that you're checking in with each other about where those boundaries are and make sure you're not, you're not crossing them. Good point. Good point. And it's kind of lonely to be, in my case, have siblings who have uh, more normal lives, shall we say. So over, over the years, it has been uh, challenging to have Christmas, for example, be, you know, without my husband and to have a day in the office be something that is, you know, out of the movies as opposed to, something, you know, quiet and serene. So it, it can be lonely and that's why you need your people. Yeah, for sure. And I think the fire department specifically, I'm not sure about police cause I haven't been in that environment, but the fire department families are pretty good about checking in on each other. I know, you know, fire department wives are some of the toughest ladies I've ever met. You know, they are not afraid to snowball the driveway cause the guy's not home and you know, they can, you know, they can do whatever they need to do, take care of six kids at once. They're pretty incredible people. Um, and I know that they rely on each other as well, too. And there is some common themes between the different spouses of the fire service, whether it's a, you know, a male or a female. And I think um, one of the challenges that they can struggle with is being with a first responder, because I'm sure you can agree with me, they think a little differently. You know, like if that radio goes off or the pager goes off, you know, they're, they are out the door, even mm-hmm. if it's even if it's Thanksgiving, even if it's Christmas, they're just wired that way. And I've definitely 
been in relationships before where, you know, the girl I was with really struggled to understand that, you know, like, well, you're not on duty. Why are you going? And it's like, well, you know, that's my other family and they're, they're working on something difficult and they're in trouble. Like I'm going like, that's, what's going to happen, you know? And, and, uh, that can be, I think a little bit of an adjustment for people who aren't from that world, because a lot of other places you grab your briefcase at 501, you head home and you don't have to go back till 8am. There's nothing that's there's nothing that's catastrophic. You know, you might have a work emer- workplace emergencies, but it's nothing that can't wait till tomorrow. You know, if someone's house is on fire and there's a firefighter trapped in the basement, everybody that even knows that guy is going to show up and try to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be putting out traffic cones, but it's going to be the most meticulously done, highest quality traffic cone placement they can do because they just want to help out. You know, one of the stories I remember is, um, there was an individual whose you know kid was going through something, and and everyone knew he was pretty stressed out. And the guy's lawn was getting mowed every single day, you know. Oh. And it's because they just people didn't know what to do, and they just want to be there, and they want to help, and they want to do that together, you know. So that's a that's something that might be a little bit different than some other services. But you know, it's about sacrifice, and I I also work with um, first responder spouses, and you know I can relate in that level. But because because you are always having to be ready to say goodbye um, and give up some of your own desires or plans for something that is very important and much bigger than you. So I really am always in awe of first responder spouses and partners and what they have to do. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And one of the transitions I've done in my personal life is transitioning from a volunteer fire position and an on-call position to a career position. And one of the the factors that helped me transition there is that a career position uh, more traditionally has on and off duty time. You know, you have a scheduled shift, you know, a few times a week, whether it's a 12 hour shift or a 24 hour shift or, you know, multiple 48s or whatever it is that you're working. So you can go into work in your street clothes, you can put your uniform on, you can mentally prepare yourself on the way to work, you get your uniform on, you're on duty until whatever, 24 hours later on the next day, then you put your uniform in your locker, you go home, you don't have a pager on you, you're not always, you know, waiting around for stuff. And for me and my life, I knew that that was going to be something that was going to be important to sustain a long career is to be able to have that on and off time. Because when I was first starting out in the volunteer age, you never know when that bell is going to go off. And there's not a lot of people sometimes to help out. So you find yourself, you know, keeping a pair of pants and socks by the door everywhere you go. You constantly are backing your car into everywhere. I don't think I pulled into a parking spot ever, you know, when I was a volunteer or a call guy. And that can wear on you a little bit, just constantly waiting, constantly at the ready, constantly like a coiled spring and, you know, worrying like, well, you know, I don't want to go too far out of town because I know this person's not in town and we need someone to drive this truck. It's very, it's a consistent worry. And that was wearing on me. Um, So my personal decision to go into a professional role was somewhat so that I could have that on and off duty time. Absolutely. It takes a toll to have that constant like adrenaline spike and, and, and dump and having to uh, recover. And, but you're always hypervigilant in some sense. And sleep, you kind of have been talking about rest and lack of rest. Uh, to me, that is such a critical missing piece in so many first responder worlds uh, and you know, lives. And I just really want to impress how important it is to, to prioritize that in some way, whether it's sleep or rest or meditation or something that takes your brain, gives it a break, so you can have that long marathon career if you're looking for that uh, and, and keep yourself as healthy as possible. 
It's yeah. critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, if there's any of the fire wives or police wives or anybody listening right now, I think they can attest to the same thing. You know, if that pager is sitting on the dresser and it keeps going off every couple hours every night, uh, that gets old pretty quick. You know, they definitely want that off when absolutely. it's when it's sleep yeah. time. You know, and. And you're definitely right. You know, there are some, and you have to pay attention to who you're working with too, I imagine. There's probably people out there that, you know, when I was on the volunteer side, I was going to 300 calls a year, but, you know, probably 50 of those were big fires, you know, and the other 50 were, you know, car accidents and then there was some other stuff. Whereas, you know, there may be someone from a larger department that goes to 3,000 a year, you know, but they're only going to a few fires. So you have to think about, is it, you know, is it a high acuity, low volume, or is it a high volume, low acuity, mm-hmm. you know, and those mm-hmm. probably, I would imagine, require a little bit of a different approach. Right. How, and also speak to this idea that as you're hearing the information come through dispatch and your brain is getting set up for something and it's entirely different and, and what that does to people as they try to prepare, yeah. you never can fully, yeah. can you? Yeah. Yeah, no, you can't. Um, I know for me, you know, whenever something, you know, kind of tough happens or something goes sideways at work, my instinct is to kind of retreat back to the firehouse and get like in the kitchen table where I'm really comfortable with all the guys I know and all the, you know, guys and girls that I know. Um, And I just wonder what the balance is like, because I know a lot of people that are like that when something is going bad at, you know, in their life or at the job they're most comfortable with the fire guys because they we work with each other. We really are a family. Sometimes, depending on overtime, we're even with them more per week than we are with our own families. And we know they know us. We train with them. We work with them. We've been in tough situations. We've been in good situations. We've won. We've lost. We have this really strong connection. Um, and I think sometimes that can be a little bit tough for um, our actual families to understand because there are people here who may not be able to go home and have that same connection. And so how do we balance, you know, our love and understanding and uh, connection with our family and the connection that we have with the fire service? Because just because we want to be at the kitchen table doesn't mean we don't want to be at home. But I think sometimes that can be confusing for a family. Have you ever dealt with that with an individual? Well, I'm thinking right now about uh, absolutely it's you think about the sacrifices that spouses and families make for their their parent uh, and loved one and think about think about ways to transition from the work setting to home. And if that becomes a way, like almost a ritual, where you are kind of shedding your work identity and all that you've been through and making that clear separation so you can go back to your family and balance out the sacrifice that they're making. And this, this is a practice, it's a discipline. Yeah. Because the exposure that you have to uh, human suffering and death is extreme. And we're only really, as human beings, cut out to handle that kind of thing, um, I'd say, less frequently. We need to recover from that and, and, and process and integrate it. And if it's this really constant barrage, that it, it will feel very instinctual to be around the people that you went through this experience with. If that trickles over to family life and you can't stop thinking about it, and you're preoccupied and you want to get back to work or you want to avoid, then that's something to consider. And that's kind of what I, I do at my, uh, at my practice is help people get through really traumatic calls and process those, and also either work on their cumulative trauma, their suffering around that. And also, it's not always the calls, Nick, as you know. It's, yeah. it's life. Yeah. And yeah. people walk through my door. I never know what I will find. Uh, every, everybody's a mystery. Everyone's complex. And all of my clients become my teachers. 
And so, yes, I have people come through the door after a horrific call, and we have a system. Where we partner together, and I use EMDR therapy to help them resolve this experience very quickly so they can, their brains can have a network that is associated with that kind of call. And it's a successful call. Even if there was a loss and not a good outcome, after this, this EMDR therapy, the disturbance around that experience is reduced, and the person can take the new learning and go forward, as opposed to being stuck and, and ruminating over it and having some negative beliefs about how they performed. And that can become insidious and uh, start to fester. So that's the one kind of experience I have with clients is the, the recent call. And, you know, 25%, if not more, of my clients come in the door, and they're bringing childhood trauma. I won't get into depth today, but that's something else that I was surprised, and I really enjoy working with these folks because they have carried a burden for their whole lives, and that may have contributed to their decision to become a first responder. You know, they, they get it, but there's a cost, so we work on that. And then I also work with people who've been in the field for... 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years who have accumulative trauma. And uh, that's challenging, but we, we can do it. We can work together to help those disturbing stories have meaning and, and reduce suffering. And we're, we're both here to reduce suffering, would, would you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, I think uh, just the stigma in our culture, whether it's fire, police, military, is that when the phone rings and something bad is happening, we're supposed to be the ones answering the phone call. So it's really hard for us to get our head around the fact that maybe we need to pick up the phone sometimes too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've definitely worked with guys where, like we said, it, it takes, uh, you know, you got to go, you know, mulch their garden bed with them or something, you know, like go do something, go for a hike, go for a walk, you know, have a campfire, like, and you just, you just sit there and you spend time with them and you wait with them. And eventually it comes around once they're, once they are, get to a point where they're like, ah, I guess I should, you know, there's nothing really else to talk about. I should talk about it. And in my experience, once that gate opens just a crack, pretty much flies right open, you know, and you can tell that they want to talk about it. They want to be there. They want to connect with you. They want someone to lean on. And these people might not be able to do that with their spouse or the children or their parents. They might not be able to do that because what they need to say and what they need to communicate is something that, those people aren't in a position to really be able to understand or accept just because it, it can be intense. And if that guy was sitting next to you in the fire truck when it went down, he knows that you can take it because you were there too. Um, one of the things I want to talk about with you before we wrap up here is just this idea of intrusive thoughts, because I think it's personally really interesting to me. Um, I mean, I don't ever feel like I was in a situation where I was, you know, truly traumatized. I know for me and a lot of guys I work with that, that word's kind of hard for us to process. And, you know, I don't really feel like I was ever in that position. Um, but when you talk about intrusive thoughts, I, I feel like there's definitely times where I have intrusive thoughts, you know, where you're, you know, you're listening to the radio and something comes on and you think about something without, you know, with just with no warning or, you know, there's one particular location in Burlington where something happened and every time I'm within a block of it, it's like a moth to a flame. Like I just gravitate towards it and I just get sucked right back there. It feels like I'm right there, you know, and you know, I'm fine. You know, I can keep moving around and doing my thing and it's not like debilitating or anything like that. But, um, like you said, I mean, it's, it can be frustrating when you don't want to think about that and it continually pops up, you know, like that particular situation, you know, I get home, I try to shed, like you were talking about, I finally get reset. And then, 
boom, on the news, boom, on the newspaper, you know, like on Facebook, on this, on that. You know, you're at the grocery store and someone in front of you is talking about it. And it's just, I think there are definitely situations where maybe we're not traumatized, but what do we do when these things start to chase us? You know, chase mm -hmm. us, you know, I'm on vacation and it's it's popping up here and it's popping up there. Are there any strategies we can do to start to address that and maybe, you know, get back in the driver's seat? Yeah, Nick, this is what I'm really passionate about is that think about how capable and how dedicated you are and your, your peers, your colleagues, your students, you're passionate, you're focused, you're intense, you want to learn as much as you can. There is no reason on earth why you should be deprived of information to understand why your brain does what it does, that your brain's actually trying to help you and there's something you can do on a regular basis to help to process and to shed these experiences in a way so that, again, they're not chasing you. So you can be in an, in an area, you can hear a name of something, of a street, and not have that emotional charge, that kind of like your, your throat tightens up or your heart races. These are signs. And just like any symptom, there's a reason why your brain is doing this. It's trying to help you. So most of what first responders become traumatized around, and trauma is, means wound, is either an experience where they felt personally unsafe, where their skills their, were challenged and they felt a moment of helplessness, and also in the context of being around human suffering. So you have this like trifecta sometimes. And I would love to see first responders becoming really attuned to their own brains and, and these intrusive thoughts, as you were saying, as indicators that something has to be done. And it's really kind of simple. It's that you find an EMDR therapist and you go as regularly to this person as you might go to your chiropractor, your physical therapist. You don't want this to catch up to you. And it just means you're human. And your brain is only meant to hold this kind of experience um, in a way before needing some, some attention. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think one thing that I think I've heard you talk about and just because I've done some reading and I just tend to soak this stuff up too is just that if these things start to fester, you know, you have some small behavioral changes, you have start having intrusive thoughts, maybe you start becoming a little bit more irritable. Um, one of the reasons that we want people to find some sort of outlet, whether it's you or a coworker or someone where they can truly share and work through this with is because it's not something that will just dissipate. Is that right? I mean, if you get to a point where you're a couple of weeks, months down the road and it continues to come up, is there, you know, is there a situation where that's just going to all of a sudden disappear and they're going to be completely fine? No, I think, I think you'll know that if you have an experience and, you know, you sleep on it, a couple of days go by, it's still a pretty serious event, but you, you know that you are healing and moving on. That's how life mostly goes, right? Yeah. If it's lingering, there's a clue. And you're right, peer support is critical and it's wonderful. It's built right in. If there's something that is lingering and you just know, you're kind of shaking your head, again, there's a sign that you may need a little more assistance in helping your brain to do what it wants to do, which is heal. Yeah. And one of the things I think is important about your service and what you offer is, like you said, working with first responders is even though you may have never been in a position where you have to perform that procedure or you may not have been in the you know, position where you need to make that decision, by hearing all of those stories and working with all these individuals, you as a trained psychotherapist can provide some sort of common themes. You can start to understand how we think and why we think. And there's, and everyone's different. I get that. And everyone's individual, but at the core, 
when someone calls for help, we, we show up and help them and we're not making millions of dollars a year. So there's some sort of intrinsic motivation that makes us want to do that. Um, and I'm sure you would agree with me. One of the things that I consider one of the biggest warning signs is when people who love their job and love to help people and love to show up and love to do it all of a sudden don't. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge change. And I'm sure there's people that, you know, the listeners here, I'm sure you all know someone that, you know, was at the top of their field, gung ho, wanted to help everybody, you know, roaring to go there, every call there, every training, and all of a sudden they disappear. And what we need to do as a culture is make sure that we're checking in on them because it can be it can be easy just to focus on the next call or the next bell or the next report. And uh, if something like that is happening, you know they didn't have a dramatic personality change. You know something may have maybe going on. And I've definitely dealt with that where it's as simple as giving a call and having a cup of coffee and just you know just saying like, hey, I was there too. Do you know that? Like, mm-hmm. I I felt that. I felt that. And then now that they know they have someone in the firehouse that understands it, they're more willing to come back because they know they're not alone. And I think, you know, when first responders feel like they're alone, it's really easy to retreat back to your house and, you know, not show up at the firehouse because you don't want people to see you as weak and you don't want to have to share that experience. But for me, one of the most eye-opening experiences I ever had was um, when someone that I really, really looked up to that I really trusted that was, you know, really senior and squared away and kind of my huge mentor you know, went through a moment of vulnerability. And that was a huge eye opener to me because I never looked at those people as vulnerable. And it it was a, you know, it actually um, gave me the ability to, you know, stop and recognize that we're all human. And maybe, you know, maybe if something's bothering me, you know, I don't have to be bulletproof. I can, I can talk to somebody and it's okay to, you know, as cliche as it is, it's okay to not be okay sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not saying you got to go and do an interview on the news, but just grab your buddy that's sitting right there drinking coffee because once you make that connection, I would be shocked if they didn't have some similar emotions. Like anybody who's been in this job for any amount of time, they probably have had some similar emotions about some stuff. Yeah. You know, and speaking of quotes, there's a, a quote by Irvin Yalom, who's a uh, famous psychotherapist and author, and it's, uh, it's the relationship that heals. So no matter what techniques the therapist might throw at somebody and in the end, it's ultimately about, you know, sitting with somebody, kind of holding that space with them. And um, I think that's what you're referring to right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's definitely been um, successful in my experience. You know, I just want to share a quick anecdote before we leave. Um, I can't take credit for this. I don't even remember where I heard it. But um, it was talking about members of PTSD in the military. I think I've shared the story with you. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a young soldier, he's stuck in a hole, and he can't get out of the hole. And he's yelling for help and yelling for help. And you know, his superior officer walks by and throws him a shovel and says, use the tools that the army gave you and get yourself out of the hole. And he digs and digs and digs and the hole only gets deeper. And then the next officer comes by and he says, help, it's getting worse. I can't get out. I'm using the tools. It doesn't help. And he says, well, that's because you don't have the bucket. Use the right tool and you'll get out. And he starts shoveling all the dirt and he can't get out and the hole gets deeper and deeper. And then finally, Another young soldier goes by and hears the cry for help, and he jumps down in the hole without hesitating and says, don't worry, I was in the hole the other day. I know how to get out. And I think that's an analogy for some of the ways that the systems can fail us. You know, like you take a firefighter and they say, hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time. You know, I, I feel like I'm a little stressed out or something's bothering me. If you take them off of the floor and send them to a mandatory counseling session with some sort of psychoanalyst that doesn't that doesn't know for the fire service and they prescribe them medication to manage that pain and you tell them they can't come back to work or, you know, 
go to any calls until they recover. I think that's probably the worst thing you could do to that person because you're pulling them away from the environment that that they understand and that they love and feel comfortable mm-hmm. in, and you're forcing some sort of treatment down their throat, which makes them feel like they're broken. Mm-hmm. And I never felt that way with you or with you know Bill or any of the other people. And I think that's something that's really unique that you guys offer. So if there's anyone here that's listening that feels like there might be something that they could get addressed or they feel like maybe they could benefit from a little bit of help, um, just know that Beth is definitely different and it's not that classic stigma that we can experience. Um, and I'm sure you can attest to this, Beth, if you're on the fence and you you think there may be something that you want to work on, but you're not really sure, there's no reason you can't give her a call and have a conversation about what she can offer. And it doesn't mean your name's going to go in the database and mm-hmm. the red file is going to get sent to everybody in the state. You know, that can be a very laid back conversation. Absolutely. And yeah. I think uh, one thing you've done too is, you know, even just stopping by the firehouse or the EMS service and just having a cup of coffee and just, you know, maybe not getting into specifics, but just saying like, hey, you know, uh, did you know we offer this? Like, are you interested in this? You know, here are the reasons. Or, you know, something like, did you know your department or your city will cover treatment? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that. They think they're going to show up and pay 500 bucks an hour and, you know, all these other things. And, you know, she can help you with the information about what she can offer and how it can help you. For sure. Sure. Well, thank you, Beth. I really appreciate it. Uh, more to come on mental health. This is just kind of dipping our toe in, you know, letting you guys know that there's some stuff out there. And I uh, appreciate you being here. I hope that uh, those of you that are listening, if this strikes a chord with you, feel free to reach out to Beth Jacobs. Like you said, she's on Psychology Today. Type her name, Beth Jacobs. You'll be able to get in touch with her. Um, so, Beth, let's give the listeners just the 30-second tips to remaining healthy in fire, EMS, and police. What are your 30-second tips for a long and healthy career? Remember what got you into this. What is your mission? Uh, Stay true to that. Find the people who care about you and can hold you accountable if you start to change. Get some rest, uh, reflect, and know that relationships are the most critical part, and people around you will be there for the long haul. uh, And... and just appreciate the work that you do and know that you're appreciated as well. Thank you, Beth. That's a great point. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Nick.